Hello and welcome to the Grace Point Henderson podcast. My name is Parker. I serve as the lead pastor at Grace Point Church in Henderson, Kentucky. We're starting a new series through the book of 1 Peter. This is the first part of this series from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 5. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. I will say, bless the Lord. If you say, oh, my soul, bless the Lord. Bless his holy name. Well, good morning. And we are excited again to start and begin our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn them on and turn them to 1 Peter chapter 1. We are finally beginning our first series through a book of the Bible. And when we were planning this, we had no idea uh, the circumstances in which that they would be delivered. In fact, we actually had several ideas of different activities that we could do to advance the gospel during this season and also during this series, but uh, we had no idea just a few weeks later after planning this series, we'd have to shift our gatherings uh, to online format because of the coronavirus pandemic. And uh, church, I believe that we will physically gather together again soon enough. And I, and I firmly believe that given the nature of the church, our physical gathering together is important and essential. And I believe that is exactly what it means, at least in some sense, to be the church. The, the term used in the New Testament is the term ekklesia. It's the Greek word that means the gathered assembly or the called out ones. And so you could argue, and one could, and I would as well, is that biblically speaking, the physical gathering of the church is at least in some way precisely what it means to be the church. And so I'm thankful. That being said, I'm also very thankful for advancements in technology that allow us to gather in this way, at least engage one another uh, through, through social media and those types of things. But I hope we're all learning a very important and valuable lesson about the importance of the gathered body of Christ. Perhaps we maybe took the assembling of together uh, for granted, or maybe uh, we can see now the helpfulness and the expanse of the gospel message through social media, the importance of maybe doing that, that the, that the message of the church, the gospel message, is going off in a lot of different platforms and places uh, through online and through uh, social media and things of that nature. Yet, I think we can all agree that this is just a little bit different. And these are certainly challenging times for us. These are difficult days. Uh, These are days that often Christians are asking what is and should be an appropriate response in circumstances such as this. And so that was certainly no different uh, when Peter uh, penned his letter uh, to uh, these Gentile Christians primarily. He's writing experiencing persecution suffering because of their faith in Christ. Paul, or excuse me, Peter, is writing to encourage them to stand fast while they endure suffering and their distress during a present evil age. Uh, Peter does this primarily of reminding them of a future reality and a glory that is to come. He encourages them to persevere knowing that there is a reward coming and their salvation is to come. He encourages them in this way to live a godly life, to live lives as good citizens, to be, uh, to, to be model examples, to be gentle with your wives, to be understanding husbands. He knows that believers, when they live in a way like this, they show that they're placing their trust and their hope in God rather than the things of this world. And so I think there's a couple of things worth noting as we begin our sermon series on First Peter. Um, 
First of all, we're, we're going to start in 1 Peter of chapter 1, verse 3, not verse 1. We'll actually go back next week and look at verse 1 and 2 uh, together. But I just found this text obviously fitting for Easter Sunday. But a couple of things worth noting uh, about 1 Peter and, and specifically about this text that we're going to unpack this morning, that, that these sufferings that were going on were Christian in nature. They were suffering for the sake of Christ. In other words, it wasn't because of any crime or wrongdoing per se. This was because of their devotion and allegiance to Christ. Secondly, I think that is worth noting as well that this was not likely an empire-wide type of persecution. Instead, it was likely localized and it was also increasing in severity. And so Christianity wasn't considered illegal when Peter is writing this message to them. But nonetheless, there is societal persecution and suffering that's going on. We don't have any examples, at least in 1 Peter, of anyone actually dying because they're Christian or because they profess Christ. It is possible, however, of course, that there could have been some suffering at the hands of local or state authorities. But specifically what is mentioned in 1 Peter, this is 1 Peter 4, is that there was some discrimination and mistreatment, maybe some verbal abuse uh, from formal colleagues or friends. And so um, the lines between discrimination, mistreatment, physical punishment, there's kind of a thin line and certainly one could lead to the next. But that's kind of the context of what's going on uh, with these Gentile Christians that Peter is writing to. And I think the third point that we kind of bring us to, I think it brings us to a logical conclusion, is that there are some similarities and also some differences Uh, within today's society and the society that Peter was writing to then. So he's not talking about this suffering that's due because of a natural disaster, something like a flood or a famine or even disease for that nature. These are all things that we experience from time to time. Those things are not uniquely Christian. So he's not talking about these unforeseen disasters or even an economic downturn. Uh, he's, he is speaking, however, of, of mistreatment um, from certain individuals, maybe because and precisely because of their profession of Jesus Christ as Lord. Maybe before they were a Christian, they were actually treated quite favorably. Uh, they were friends with these people, but yet as they professed Christ, uh, they were persecuted and they were talked about they were uh, they were slandered against they experienced some persecution uh, and enduring hardships nonetheless and this is why Peter reminds them he has this language that he says he says the reason you're suffering is because you are chosen by God you are a chosen race a royal priesthood a people for God's own possession and more than that he says not only are you chosen but you're also called you've been called to suffer because Christ has left you an example to follow in his place. And so, yes, we suffer for Christ, but yes, we also suffer with Christ. We join him in suffering as well. And all of this escalating, this persecution would continue to escalate and get worse and worse. But Peter is just encouraging and reminding them of the hope that we have, that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is in a world to come. And what we're going to see this morning is that because of the resurrection of Jesus, we not just have any type of hope. We have a living hope. So let's read this morning, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. I hope you have your Bibles. I would encourage you to walk through this text with me. We're going to look at it quite often, so I'd encourage you to open your Bibles and read along, follow along with me. 1 Peter 1, 1, 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, 
and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Father, I pray that you would illumine the person of Christ in this text and that he would make a way as only he can. And by your spirit, I pray that you would speak to us. And that you would help us to hear your word, receive your word, apply and obey your word. We love you, Lord. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I want to bring your attention uh, to a few things this morning. Number one, I want you to see, I want you to see the work of salvation. Peter is calling our attention to the work of salvation. He does this in verse 3. He says, first of all, this is from God. He says, this is because of God's great mercy. I want you to write this down. Because of God's attributes, we experience a spiritual and eternal benefits. It's not because of who we are, but because of who God is. Because of who God is, because of his attributes, we experience something from him. It's according, the scripture says, to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again. He has brought about this great work. And what is that work? It corresponds, as he says, with a new birth. Many of you know, and one of my greatest joys to this day was to witness the birth of my first child. And there's many things that I could say about this manner, but certainly about the nature of birth. But if someone were to ask me proof that my daughter's was birthed, Parker, I want you to give me proof of your daughter's birth. I could certainly send them a copy of her birth certificate. I could certainly take you to the hospital in which that she was born. I could try to track down any nurses or doctors that helped in her delivery. I could show you a photo of my pregnant wife, or I can interview nurses who took care for her during her pregnancy. I could show you all of those things. But I believe the greatest proof is nothing more than her very life. The greatest proof of her birth is that she lives. The greatest proof of her birth is that she's alive. And one day, if you were to ask her, how do you know that you were born? And she will say, just as you, well, because I'm here. Here I am. I'm here. I'm alive. It's simple. How do you know that I'm born? Because I'm alive. I'm here. It's simple. Yet, if you were to ask that same question to 100 churchgoers, how do you know that you've been born again? The results would be quite mixed, I'm sure. I think our language would slightly change a little bit. Would you answer in this way, because of my life in Christ? How do you know that you're born again? Because I have new life in Christ. It's proof of my spiritual birth. I'm a new creature. I once was dead, but now I'm alive. And all a result of God's work and his grace in my life. But I think you would maybe begin to hear, others may opt, for something less than that. Note the language that I'm about to say. You probably heard this often. They might say something like, I did all the things necessary and taught so that I could be saved. Well, I walked an aisle. Well, I, I prayed to receive Christ. Well, I signed a card. I've got an inscription in the front of my Bible with a date on it. I, I've received the sacraments. I've joined 
the church. Do you note the language that, that I did something? Yet the way Peter unpacks this nature of new birth, it's the same as our spiritual birth. It's the same as our physical birth. Our physical birth was done to us. It's something that we experience. No one takes credit for being born. It's something that happens to us, happens to us all. Yet it's interesting that we begin to shift the language when we talk about a spiritual birth. But I don't believe the Bible speaks of it in that way. I don't believe the Bible intends to speak of salvation in that way. The same is true of our spiritual birth that is true of our physical birth as well. It is no doubt pointing to it is a work of God. And that John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus is puzzled, right? What do you mean? Do I climb back into my mother's womb? What do you mean be born again? You must be born from above. And that's Peter's point here. It says it's according to God's great mercy. He has caused, the causality, the causal action of us being born again is placed on God. God is to be praised, Peter says, because of this. Because he has brought about our new birth. Think of the scripture, Ephesians 2. But God being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he has loved us even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved. And I know that I was blind and kept from seeing the truth of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 2, 4. And it was God, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, who let the light shine out of darkness and shone into my heart and gave me the light of the knowledge of the glory and the light of Jesus Christ. It was God who opened my eyes to the beauty of the scriptures and what was being said by the Apostle Paul through the word of God. Acts 16 verse 14. It was the Lord who brought about my salvation and made me into a new creature. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Yet I was hostile towards God. I was resistant towards him. I was unwilling, undeserving, unwilling to repent of my sin and trust the Lord. Yet it was the, the Lord himself who called me to himself to help me see the sweetness and joy of his salvation, John 6, 44. And it was the Lord who brought about my repentance and brought me to my senses, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. And it was, yes, through faithful men like Brad Johnson, Gabe Ross, and Rob Jackson who also taught me the ways of the Scripture and helped me grow. But ultimately, it was God who brought the increase, 1 Corinthians 3, 6. And it was the Lord who granted me belief, but not only granted my belief, but also granted that I might endure suffering for the sake of Christ, Philippians 1, 29. And it is no longer I who live, Galatians 2, 20, but I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. All of this a work of the Lord who saved me. It is not my own doing. It is the work and gift of God, Ephesians 2, 8. And for all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but of God, John 1, 12, 12, John 1, 12 and 13. And Peter says this in 1 Peter 2, he says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possessions, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness. It was him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous lights. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Note this. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. We are recipients of 
his mercy. And it is the Lord who saved, but it is also the Lord, Second Peter 3, 9. It is the Lord who is not slow to fulfill his promise, his son count slowness. But he is patient with you. He is patient towards you as well, sinner. Not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. And that's the news that Peter comes with right out of the gate. He says, I want you to know that God is worthy to be praised and you should praise the Lord too as well. And when you speak of your salvation, don't think of it so much in terms about what you've done, but in terms of how great our great Savior's grace is. How great a mighty Savior we serve. Blessed be God, Peter says. Praise be to God. He has caused us to be born again. Point number two, I want you to see this glorious triad. Verses four and five. The structure in this text is a bit striking, but the the, the triad should come up on the screen. There are three primary uh, presuppositions that that carry this text. It's this a living hope. There's an inheritance and there is a salvation. So to a living hope, to an inheritance and four, a salvation. Peter does and often builds triads. He does this in verses 1 and 2. He begins with the triad of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Spirit, and Jesus Christ the Son. He does this in the paragraph that we're kind of studying right now all the way through verse 12. 12. God the Father is a central figure in 3 through 5. God the Son in verses 6 through 9. And God the Holy Spirit, verses 10 through 12. But it's a living hope, and we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I want to skip down to talk about an inheritance that is persevering. He says this hope is seen as an inheritance. Peter is using Old Testament imagery in the same way that he does with these terms that he uses often throughout his writings, strangers and sojourners and exiles, referring to you are a new spiritual Israel through Christ. And he uses this language as inheritance for Israel was what God had promised this land to his Old Testament people. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. There was an apportionment of land given to each tribe of Israel. That's mentioned extensively through the book of Joshua. But Peter knew and understood that this hope in Jesus was better than any land that we could ever receive. It was living. It wasn't land. It was a living Hope. And that's to be found ultimately in the new heavens and new earth. This is going to come up on the screen as well. This is Second Peter 3. This is the second letter that he wrote. Verses 11 through 13. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolve, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. Watch this. But according to the promise, we are waiting for the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Peter says, set your hope and affection on the world that is to come, on the new heavens and new earth, this inheritance that is yours. In fact, if you read in the book of Hebrews, in the Faith Hall of Fame, if you will, the Hall of Faith, 
Hebrews chapter 11, it says these patriarchs even understood that to be true. Hebrews 11, verses 13 through 16, it says, These all died in faith, not having received the things which were promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they were seeking a homeland. For if they had been thinking of a land from which they had gone out, they would have opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to call them to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And it is not an earthly city, it is a heavenly city. It is a city that is in the new heavens and new earth. We are, as Peter says, you have an inheritance. And that's borrowing from the Apostle Paul's theology that he says, you're heirs with Christ, right? You're fellow heirs with him, children of God, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Romans 8, provided that we suffer with him in order that we be also glorified with him. And the hope of the believer in Jesus is otherworldly. It's not found here. It is found instead in the new heavens and new earth. This is why Jesus would famously say, he says, don't lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart would be also. He says this hope, this living hope that you have, this inheritance that you have, it's imperishable. In other words, it cannot perish away. It is incapable of deterioration or breaking down. It's undefiled. It it is free from stain or blemish. It cannot lose its luster or its beauty. This is the same word that's used in Hebrews. It talks about the sinlessness and spotlessness of Christ. He is without stain or blemish. It's imperishable, undefiled, and it's unfading, meaning it will last forever. All of this, Peter says, it's working toward a salvation, an assurance, in conclusion, a salvation or deliverance that is to be revealed to you. And Peter, it means for this to be a solid anchor for your soul. What assurance we have in Christ. Because if it is, and it is, the work of God, if you're rebirth, if you're spiritually born again, if that is the work of God, and it is, then you have hope. (laughs) then you have assurance. You can take it to the bank. It is trustworthy. It will not fade. It will last forever. It will not be stained or tainted. It will be kept and guarded. That's a Greek military term that says it will never be abandoned. It will never be left abandoned. It will never be left unattended and no one can snatch it away from him. My sheep know my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life, Jesus says. And they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Believer in Christ, if you have been born again, you are secure in Christ. We have this sure, steadfast, steady anchor for our souls in Christ, Hebrews six nineteen. And so believer in Christ, you need not be timid or insecure in your salvation. If it is from the Lord, you can take it to the bank. It is yours. You don't have to wonder and doubt or to be unsure. Instead, you should rejoice. You should reject. You should rest. You should continue and repent and return to your Savior. This is the life of a new creature who is in Christ. And we cling always. 
to Jesus. We always look to Jesus, fixed on our hope, not on our merit, but on the hope that we have. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. So thirdly, what if what is this hope? What of this hope in verses three through five? It is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We said just a moment ago, it is otherworldly. Folks, the the hope that is offered in this world is at best a dead hope. It's a hope that has no life. It has absolutely nothing that this world can offer you that is sure and lasting and confident or worth placing your hope in in any way that it can bring lasting satisfaction. I mean, you name it. See if it holds up. You may say, well, my health. Well, that's great until it begins to decline. And surely this global pandemic is enough proof to say we need not place our hope in health for it cannot keep us and cannot ultimately save us. Some will say, well, I'll put my hope in science. Well, as much advancement as science has, it cannot explain all mysteries and phenomena, nor can it fix every problem. It may provide to us some answer, but not always solutions. My children, heaven forbid your children be taken from you, but they are, scripturally speaking, a blessing and a gift from God. They are not sure and steady. For anyone who has lived through the heartbreak of infertility or losing a child, you know the sharp sting and the pain of realizing that pregnancy is not innocent and that life is not certain. What about my wealth? Sure. So long as till it fails you and in your misery and your surplus looking for meaning and purpose. Plenty of people have the world's goods at their disposal, yet they are searching for hope. Our wealth will not save us. Our wealth will not give us hope. What about my abundance of friends and company? True, until they all forsake you as well and they leave you alone. What about my savings? Sure, as long as the market's still good and it's working to your advantage. What about my mind and my wisdom? Sure until your health continues to decline, eventually catches up with your brain as well. This world does not offer us any hope. This world does not offer us any satisfaction. This is is the old song that we used to sing, right? I can't get no satisfaction. I can't get no satisfaction, though I try and I try and I try. I cannot get any satisfaction. The Rolling Stones were right. But I want to tell you about a different stone that rolled 2,000 years ago. And it's because of that hope, because the grave has been defeated, because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have hope today. See, this world not only offers us a despairing hope, but we had no hope as well. We had no hope because we were sinners. We failed to live the life that God required of us. We have disobeyed him. We have gone against him. We've reviled against him. The scripture says we are revilers, haters of God. We hate him with our hearts. We do not love him as we ought. And the scripture says that we deserve condemnation. We deserve death. But the scripture also says this, is that sin is a curse. And that because of our sin, we are under the curse of sin. And if God were to give us what we deserve, he would give us his condemnation. He would curse us. He would cast us away from him. He would condemn us. We deserve the condemnation. We deserve to be a curse. 
But the good news of the gospel is this, is that Jesus lived the life that we couldn't. He lived the life, a perfect life in obedience to God. He lived and was hated for it. And he was put to death. He was crucified by sinful man. And he bore our sin on the cross. The scripture says he became a curse for us. He took on our sin on himself. And praise God that we celebrate this morning that Jesus did not stay in the grave. By the power of God, though, he was resurrected. And he is alive today. He is alive. The tomb is empty. He is alive. And we have hope because of what Christ has done. It is a living hope. It's not the hope of emptiness and vain pursuit of this world. It's because of the hope of Jesus Christ that we have hope. Because of his resurrection, we have a living hope. But our hope wasn't found just in a tomb. What's interesting is when you read the resurrection's accounts that you see the disciples going, arriving to the tomb. And you see Mary coming and she's arriving to the tomb. And they go and they stick their head in and they're perplexed. They don't know actually what to make out of it. It actually says that one of them believed and they went back home. And then Mary comes to the tomb and she's weeping. And she says, where have they laid him? Where have they laid him? You look inside an empty tomb and there's nothing that gives you hope there. There wasn't any hope found inside the tomb itself where the disciples and where the followers of Jesus found their hope was when they saw the resurrected Lord and that he was victorious over the grave. We don't have hope because of a tomb. We have hope because of the one who defeated the tomb and defeated hell, death, and the grave. He's alive. Jesus is alive. He's alive just like he told you that he would be. That's why the entire New Testament focuses on the resurrection and the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in Jesus and in Christ alone. It comes from the resurrection. To say that after the chaos comes a morning, that after despair comes hope, that after night comes a dawn, and then after death comes a resurrection. And this hope found in Jesus and only in Jesus changes everything about us now. And Peter would say that we live not as citizens on this earth because we have been born again. And we cling not to the things of this world because we have no portion here. We are not from this world, but we live for the world that is to come. We trust not in princes and horses, but we trust in the Lord our God. We build up for ourselves, not treasures on this earth, but treasures in heaven. And when we grieve, beloved, we do not grieve to the point of despair because we have this hope that is alive, living inside of us through the power of his Holy Spirit. And even the worst that can happen to me or to you, beloved, is that I'm killed and that my life gives way and tomorrow is not promised. For James says that my life is but a midst, for it's here for a little while and then it vanishes. And beloved, one day my life, I will fill my lungs with breath for the last time and my lungs will eventually give out. And they will be emptied of any life-sustaining breath. And in that moment, my soul will continually be filled and I will breathe in and out the sweet, life-giving, soul-satisfying reality that Jesus is alive and He has caused me to be born again and that Christ and Christ alone is my only hope. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead is our only hope, Christian. 
And when your life gives out, you look to eternal life to come because of the hope and the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said. This will come up on the screen as well. He says, the fact that Jesus Christ died is more important than the fact that I will die. And the fact that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead is the sole ground of my hope that I, too, will be raised on the day of judgment. So when I ask you this morning, what about you? Do you have hope today? This hope is living and available. The scripture says in 2 Peter 3, it'll come up on the screen, that the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises or some are slow to count slowness, but he is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. The Lord desires that you would repent this morning. And here's what I know to be true. I know that sometimes we can try to keep our hearts at bay by putting a little distance between us and something else. I think you know what I mean by that, but just in case you're tugging, something's tugging at your heart, instead of caving to that thing, we kind of pull away and resist it. We just need some space. We kind of create some rationale or some reasons in our mind that another option uh, may be best suitable. We do this all the time in, in, in ways, in different areas and ways in our life. Maybe it's the new car you're thinking about buying. You've you got to get out of the dealership for a little bit because you're about to make a decision that you don't want to regret. So I just need some space, right? Uh, maybe it's the, the girl that got away, right? You just need some space to, to put that person out of your mind. You just need some time and some space because you can't just fixate on that. So you've got to give yourself some space. Or maybe it's the late night snack that you can't seem to put down and get away from. You just need some space. And so sometimes creating some distance kind of prevents us from making a decision one way or another. And I think the same is true spiritually as well. And, and maybe you're watching this live stream right now and say, man, it's happening again. You know, here, this, here goes this preacher talking about Jesus. You're starting to get uncomfortable. And so what do you do now? Well, you start creating space. And maybe some of you, you just turn off this, this, stream, use this stream and you may say, well, I, I just need some more facts. I think if I can just get some more facts, and I, and I love facts, don't get me wrong. And I, you think, well, if I can just get some more facts at place here, then, then maybe I can make a more reasonable and rational decision. But I, there's plenty of facts about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the authenticity of Scripture, the historical Jesus, etc. But ultimately, no one comes to Christ because of facts. And hope is experienced not because of facts so much as it's because of experience. It's the same way of like that chair that you're sitting in watching this live stream. You're trusting that it will hold you up. And now I could come along and I said, well, let's just make sure the physics actually work here. I mean, are you sure that color is going to work out okay? Are you sure that the floor underneath is really sustainable enough that I can sit down in it? And you're just like, bro, sit down. Would you learn to just trust and rest? I promise this chair will give you some rest. But at some point, you're going to have to give way to the facts and the physics and the science and all of this to say, will you actually sit and trust in this? And the same is true for us spiritually as well. And the living hope that you're looking for is found in the person of Jesus Christ. And while facts are good, don't get me wrong, facts are great and they have their place. But they also have a tendency of giving enough distance between you and seeing your need from Christ that you'll never make that decision. And so I'm imploring you today to reach out in faith rather than fact. 
to reach out in faith and trust the Lord Jesus. And this living hope that we can experience in Christ, we don't experience from a distance. We experience in rather we experience by rather drawing near and tasting to see that the Lord is good. That's Psalm 34, 8. And I got to tell you something. I got to be really honest. I will never forget the moment that I tasted and saw that the Lord is good. And I saw the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, now today I trust the Lord. I believe that my faith is reasonable. But ultimately, I trust the Lord. I trust Christ, not because of facts, but by faith. I trust him because I have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And I know that this hope is sure. I know that his hope is lasting, and I know that the hope that he gives is a living hope. But beloved, it is only through the person of Jesus Christ that you have a living hope. Have you placed your faith in Christ today? Have you trusted in Christ alone, in Christ for salvation and then see that there is no need for any, any continued merit on your behalf or sacrifice. There's no need for it to be mediated by a priest or anybody else for that matter. For the scripture says there is one mediator between God and man. That is the man, Christ Jesus. Have you trusted in Christ, in Christ alone? I want to give you an opportunity to do that. I want to extend an invitation to you to say, would you respond? Would you repent of your sin and trust in Christ for salvation today? Would you be so moved by his great mercy, he says in 1 Peter, that it would cause you to be born again to a living hope? Would you believe the gospel this morning? Would you see the truth of Jesus' death in your place, his perfect life on your behalf, and would you share in his resurrection from the dead by repentance and faith? We repent of our sin, we turn away from our sin, and we turn towards Christ and trust him. If that's you today, I want to give you an opportunity. I want, you to ask, I want to ask you to do me a favor. Just right where you are, I want you to just to send us a message. We're about to have a time of response. And during that time of response, if you are seeking out to trust Christ, repenting of your sin, trusting the Lord, I want you just to send a note in our Facebook Messenger app, or you can send it to me in an email at parker at gracepointhenderson.com. And if you don't know what to say, I just want you to say four words. And they're going to come up on the screen, but just simply say, I repent, I believe, and hit send. And somebody will receive that, we'll reach back out to you, and we'll talk about what it means to grow in Christ, to continue in that relationship with the Lord if you've repented of your sin and trusted Jesus. But as our musicians come to lead us in a time of response, if you are trusting in the Lord, just send us that message. It says, I believe, I repent. And send this to us through Facebook or through an email. We'd be happy to follow up with you. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll respond together. Thanks for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. For more information about Grace Point Church, go to gracepointhenderson.com. And if you live in the Henderson, Kentucky area, we invite you to join us for worship on Sundays at 10, 15 a.m. Be sure to click the subscribe button so you'll never miss an episode of the Grace Point Henderson podcast. 